This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast, or welcome, 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 if it is your first time listening to us. Hello, hello. We are your hosts. My name is Gavriel Hakoen. And I am cult survivor, cult expert, Sadie Carpenter. How is your life? How are you doing today, Sadie? Right at this moment, I'm doing great. Uh, My cat, who is not really much of a lap cat, came and climbed up on my lap, and he is purring and happy. So this moment is fantastic. That is excellent. I'm very happy for you. I am currently decked out head to toe in Philadelphia Eagles gear because today is the Kelsey Bowl. Uh, The day that we're recording this, at least, the Eagles are playing the Chiefs. Um, My girlfriend is, uh, her family's from Kansas City and she's a Chiefs fan, so she's coming over. But I live in Philadelphia. I'm an Eagles fan. And we're going to, you know, have a little party. We're going to watch this game. But that's not what we're doing today on this episode. Uh, Today we're talking about modesty rules in the independent fundamental baptist movement in the ifb yes we are going to i know we've talked about different facets of these rules a lot of times on the podcast but what we've never done is sat down and done an entire episode about every nitty-gritty rule and sub rule and sub sub rule (laughs) (laughs) that is what we're doing today 
if you're just coming to this show or because you just learned about the IFB from the uh, new investigation discovery documentary that came out uh, called Let Us Pray, want to say welcome you to like all of the new listeners. um, And maybe I'll just let you guys know what this show is about. Um, The Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast that is about uh, my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, uh, the cult in which she was raised. So we talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, then there's numerous things that you can do to support us. You can join our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. Um, this is a great place to get bonus content where basically every episode uh, that we record, we kind of have a tendency to go long, talk about, you know, go off topic and all the times when we go long or we go off topic um, or just have interesting discussions that aren't necessarily related to the podcast episode. We talk about that on our Patreon. There's like an extended cut that comes out a couple of days early before the streaming cut comes out. So you can find that there on patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. You can join our subreddit and our Facebook group. Both of those are called Eden Exodus. Both of those are excellent places where you can have discussions about the show, what you heard on the show and related topics. I think we've got about 33, 3,400 people in our Facebook group. And there's, I think, 25, 20, something like a couple thousand people that are subscribed to our subreddit and regularly engage in discussion there. And that's a lot of fun. We really love the community. Other thing, we have some new merchandise that's available now. Some, uh, there's one Christmas design that I have, uh, designed and is available on our threadless shop. It's the paganism design, but there's a couple of other ones that if you are an offering or higher tier patron, um, you're going to be able to vote on which design you want to see released. That's one of the Patreon perks is that we let people vote on merchandise designs. So if you want to have maybe a say in what merch we're going to release, then, You'll find that on the Patreon, but the merch is available to everyone on our Threadless shop, and the link is in the description. Also, um, for those of you who haven't, who didn't find us because you heard the, because you saw the Let Us Pray documentary on Investigation Discovery or HBO Max, we would highly recommend that you guys check it out. It's a friend of ours, a guy named Eric Skwarzynski from the Preacher Boys podcast, is heavily involved in the production of let us pray and he's really a great dude he does an excellent job at platforming the stories of survivors of of victims of people who have really survived church abuse and you know we really uh, um support the work that he's done and that so make sure that you check that out it's called let us pray he's been working on it for years and it's finally seeing the light of day and it's and yeah we were so excited to see that documentary and like Avi said, we'll be able to talk with Eric on the pod here shortly. Yeah, um, in just a few days after we're recording this episode, we are actually having Eric come on the pod, and we're going to release that, I think, as a bonus episode. So that'll be really good. That We're really excited to do that, um, and, and you'll get to hear all about that. And I guess now it's time for us to thank our I Gave It All and Faith Promise Missions tier patrons. So, Sadie, we have a new I Gave It All tier patron. Yes, we do. Yeah, uh, I want to say a great big shout out and a thank you to Melora King, 
who is a new I gave it all to your patron. Thank you so much for supporting our podcast in the way that you do. Um, you're fantastic. Uh, also want to say a big thank you to our other I gave it all to your patrons. We have Kathleen Moncrief, Melissa Mosley, and Todd Dale on behalf of his lovely Deconstruct Arena of a Wife, Madeline Antrim. You guys are re- like, I, I, I like, I'm, I'm at a loss for words of the the level of support that you guys give us. It's it, you know, it's it's really fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much to our I gave it all to your patrons. A big thank you as well to our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons. Your names are Alex P, Ali Allen, Am Yisrael Chai, Anisha Patel, Autumn of Our Discontent, Brittany, Chrissa Walker, Crystal Patterson, Dan the Transman, Dora J, Eleanor Donahue, Enchanted Fairy, Hannah Ross, Hannah Montana, Hoosier X Fundy, Hope Norum, Horton Hears a Shane, Janine Collin, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jonna, Kat Henwood, Kay Turwee, Kristen Marie, Learned Vixen, Leaving Eden's Christmas Ho Ho Ho. That's funny. That's Morgan. Um, yeah, aka CD's actual BFF Morgan. Um we've got some fun stuff planned for christmas by the way for anybody who's uh looking forward to that but we have linda morgan lindsey goss madeline antrim madeline cusick marlena stuve marcia millard mary williams mary martin megan arendt melissa g rob the methodist chartuterie stephanie johnson steve and amy Susie, tara mcnamara and as always, Wes the Cowboy. Thank you to all of our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons and our I Gave It All tier patrons. You guys support us in a very big way. And without without the support of all of our patrons, we would not be able to devote the time and effort and you know energy that it takes to do all of this research and you know all of the production to you know to, to be able to make the show as often as we do or as in depth as we do. And so um we really want to say a big thank you to you guys for uh, all of the ways in which you support us. It's fantastic. It's awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much to our, I gave it all to your patrons and our faith promise missions tier patrons to everybody who supports us on Patreon and to those who support us in non-financial ways, like making sure you're subscribed to the show, sharing us with friends and family, sharing us on social media. Every little bit counts when it comes to being an independent podcast. We appreciate all of it. I have one other tiny piece of housekeeping. And that is, if you are trying to join our Facebook group, Eden Eden Exodus, please double check that you answer the membership questions. Uh, We have those so that everybody's on board with the same set of rules of conduct of how we're going to treat each other in that group and keep it as safe and supportive of a place as we can, um, especially with it being a group that frequently discusses religion and politics. We really want to keep everybody on the same page. It's a great group. It is really a very nice place considering um, the topics of our group. I'm very impressed with our group members and how kindly they treat each other. But we need everybody to answer those membership questions that pop up when you attempt to join so that we know that everybody's made that commitment. If you have a membership request that's been sitting in the queue for a while 
and you haven't gotten into the group, it's because you haven't answered the membership questions. So just a reminder, especially if people are finding us because of the documentary and wanting to join the Facebook group, uh, make sure you answer those membership questions. Yeah, I mean, the there's only been like a couple of times in the three years that we've been running the group that it's ever gotten at all toxic. And it's always just been like one or two people and, you know, and that, you know, had to go and then we, but like, I, I don't know. I think when you have a group of people that are mostly trauma survivors, they tend to be more on the compassionate side. Yeah, but it's truly amazing how little drama we have over there. Considering <laughs> the, the, the membership the questions. Media. <laughs> I know. But the membership questions are part of how we keep it that way. Yeah. Anyway, let's get into the episode. All right. So today we are talking about all of the different IFB rules for modesty. I think that's one of the things that people really grab onto. Also, I think that the way that people dress is one of the most easy ways to identify what somebody's culture is or what somebody's mm -hmm. religious beliefs are like it just from like a glance of them sometimes that can just be like okay this is what you wear it's religiously mandated um you know as far like and there are you know some cultures where we don't necessarily think of that as like a cult thing um and i think ifb in particular is one where the way that people dress is not based on some religious commandment it that's like maybe stated in the bible it's based on the need to control every aspect of a person's life. And that's why we're, why it's, I think, one of the biggest jumping off points that we can have for people who want to really get into and understand what it means to be a member of this cult. Yeah. When we look at pictures of well known fundamentalists, people who are IFB or IFB adjacent, like Jill Rodriguez or Michelle Duggar. You can see visually the way that they are dressing is different from most people in the world around them. Even if you're totally uninitiated to the world of Christian fundamentalism, you notice that they are wearing probably a long denim skirt or a long skirt past their knees. They're covering their shoulders. They're wearing a high-necked blouse. But you don't see the huge canon of unwritten rules behind literally every article of clothing that they're wearing. They have Bible verses to back up certain parts of the rules, but there are sub rules and subcategories of rules that go beyond that that are based on tradition and a desire to never, ever, ever break what they perceive to be modesty rules in the Bible. So I wanted to share this with our audience, because even for me, when I think back about how many rules there were, it can be a little bit mind-blowing. I also think this will make a really fun discussion in our Facebook group, where certain groups differed from the IFB or where different parts of the IFB differed from each other. Do you want to start with like what the general rules are and then do the explanations and then get into like the more specific like sub-rules and then the sub-sub-rules after that? So I think I want to start with skirts because that is kind of the defining factor, although it is far from the only factor of IFB modesty rules. It's the thing that you'll see on an IFB website. You know, we're an old-fashioned IFB church and our women wear skirts. And so it's, it's the trademark. And they'll say that on the website. They will say it on the website. It's, it's kind of the trademark look of the IFB, even though there is a ton more to it than that. All IFB modesty rules go back to one basic 
premise. Before I tell you what that premise is, I got to make a disclaimer. I will use both woman and AFAB in this episode to refer to people assigned female at birth and socialized to the gender role of woman. We certainly recognize that not every AFAB person is a woman and not every feminine presenting person is a woman and not every woman is AFAB. We know all of that, but it's probably no surprise to you that the IFB does not acknowledge or believe in any of that or in any LGBTQ people at all in any way, shape or form. So you'll hear me using men and women in conjunction with the more accurate terms AFAB and AMAB in this episode, because that is the very black and white way that the IFB see gender. Now that I've got that disclaimer out of the way, the basic premise of IFB modesty rules is that men are visual creatures. Men are uncontrollably attracted to women, and men's attraction is generally determined by what they can visibly see. Men have sexual thoughts all the time about just about any woman in their vicinity. But even thinking a sexual thought about a woman that you're not married to is a sin. The twist is, if you are a woman and you dress in a way that makes a man think sexual thoughts, you are partially responsible for that sin per IFB teachings. If the man in this situation continues that sin and chooses to sexually assault you in any way, you are partially responsible because you tempted him with your clothing choices. The other side of this coin is that while men are considered to be sex-crazed maniacs, God also chose them to be the leaders. So in order for them to lead properly, you can't tempt them in any way. And if a man stumbles into sin and leads people astray or is unable to fulfill his God-appointed duty, then it is the fault of the woman who tempted him. Yeah. So this is essentially a way to blame almost all sins on women. So a sin that a woman does is her fault, but a sin that a man does is a woman's fault because she tempted him or made him angry or wasn't a good wife or wasn't a good mother or whatever. And it goes all the way back to Eve eating the fruit in the Garden of Eden. And it's really disgusting. So the quintessential IFB modesty rule, the big one, is that women are not allowed to wear pants and must wear skirts or dresses always. Now, for friends outside the United States, when I say pants, I mean trousers. (laughs) Um, Underwear are allowed. We know there's a, a vocabulary difference there. There are rules about that, but they are allowed. So the scripture verse that is used to support this rule is Deuteronomy 22.5. I'll I'll read that from the King James Version. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. The IFB interpretation of this verse is that dresses and skirts are historically coded as women's garments, and pants are historically coded as men's garments. Therefore, men should not wear skirts or dresses, and women should not wear pants. Some people might say, well... Men in Bible times didn't wear pants. Everyone wore robes, which is kind of like a dress. The IFB answer is, well, men wore shorter robes, and there was a clear difference. Even if you saw somebody at a distance, you could tell whether they were a man or a woman. And if you saw a woman coming from a distance in pants, you might not be able to tell. But if she's wearing a skirt, you can tell. Which, I don't know why we need 
gender identification from 500 yards, but here we are. Nobody, this was before glasses were invented, so people couldn't really see that well either. So I don't, I mean. Yeah, but how many, (laughs) how many times do you see a person walking up to you and you think, oh, I actually, the most important thing for me to know about them is what their gender is. I guess there are people who, who do think that way. So another objection to this IFB rule might be, well, there are pants that are made and designed for women. How is that a man's garment? The IFB will say, well, that doesn't matter because pants were invented for men, which is kind of a weird and Eurocentric view. And that pants that are made for women are just copying the design that was originally invented for men. They will also say that it's good because it obscures the curves of your legs, which can, it's a lust prevention device. And they will also say that wearing skirts are good because they set you apart from the rest of the world and people can look at you and tell you, tell that you are not just anybody, you're different. And some verses that they would use to back this up are, uh, I don't remember the reference, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then also uh, the verse about being a peculiar people. So if the verse about peculiar people is used a lot within the IFB to justify if you're doing something and it makes you seem weird, you're probably doing the right thing. So aside from it was commanded by God, is there a reason for this rule? Is, or is there like more practical reasoning behind why this rule has to be there? I don't think so. It, I think that's just how they interpret that verse. That's how they believe women should appear at all times. I was always told growing up, if you can't do an activity modestly in a skirt or in culottes, then it's probably not something. And culottes are pants, but we don't talk more. Not in IFB world. <laughs> in IFB world, they... Culottes are not what you think of, like, there are culottes that come in and out of fashion in, like, mainstream fashion every 10 to 15 years that are basically very loose cropped pants. That is not the IFB definition. The IFB culottes are a whole different thing. They are a two-legged garment that is incredibly loose and pleated and looks like a skirt unless the person who is wearing it is in motion, like they're walking or climbing a tree or something. Oh, okay. So it's not like you can't wear pants, but you can wear like Jenko jeans. Um, no, the the line is it needs to look like a skirt when you're standing still. As anybody who is familiar with the Duggars, and, and I guess we talked about this a little earlier, and other forms of fundamentalism, uh, as uh, you'll be aware that the first time somebody who is fundy or or ex-fundy or deconstructing goes out in public wearing pants the first time they do that that's kind of a big deal it's like seen as a big milestone in a person's deconstruction when ginger duggar wore pants in public for the first time it was all over tmz earlier this year we reviewed jill duggar dillard's book uh, counting the cost and in that book she wrote about going out in public wearing pants uh for the first time and mistakenly running into her entire family and how like terrifying that was and i felt so bad for her when i read that story i mean you you understand the the struggle yeah but i didn't have 18 other siblings (laughs) oh that that was 
so tough to read. Also, um, speaking of Jill Duggar Dillard's book and Jill Duggar Dillard wearing pants, f*** you, Rich Jezbiak, and good job running Jezebel into the ground. So I don't remember, I don't know that I remember the first time I wore pants. I remember some early times. <laughs> so one of the one of the first times was also the first time I went to a movie theater, and we all know how that went. <laughs> I do remember the first time I bought pants and how weird that was. It was at a Plato's closet in Mobile, Alabama. I also remember the first time I wore shorts that was Easter Sunday of 2014. Uh, I wore shorts and a tank top to go to the beach, and I was so uncomfortable and also so incredibly pale. So were you, when you did this, were you afraid that you might see somebody that you knew from like church or from your community who might judge you for it? No, because by the time I was ready to wear pants in public, we had moved away from the IFB church that my dad pastored in Illinois. We had moved to Alabama. And I was attending a Southern Baptist church at the time. So everybody around me at church already wore pants and didn't care. And my parents were not supportive, but pretty neutral. They weren't gonna they weren't gonna yell at me. They weren't gonna get me in any kind of trouble for it. And so this was what, spring twenty fourteen? Yes. So this would like this is early, early, early in Sadie's deconstruction. Yeah. I did, however, completely avoid posting pictures on Facebook. If you could tell that I was not wearing a skirt, if I was wearing pants in the picture, because that was where I really thought I would get some judgment. I was still Facebook friends with a lot of people who were still attending Hiles Anderson, still attending very strict IFB churches. So if you look at my photos from like 2014 to 2017, you will see like a lot of awkward crops at the waist (laughs) to make sure it's not obvious. I wonder if that's like a thing that uh, the the IFB sleuths are looking for. They're like, who's cropping their photos at the waist? I don't know who's- if they are, but also I know, like I see it. You see it. Yeah. But did you see it before you started deconstructing? Yes. It, there is very, <laughs> it's very much, um, <clears throat> there's very much a thing where you see somebody's social media photos and try to decipher whether they are wearing pants in the photo and trying to make it less obvious. And so I will see even now, I have like I have a, a few quite a few friends who are either still IFB or have left the IFB movement and the worst part of it, but are still very strict Baptist or very strong believers. And I will occasionally see somebody start cropping their photos weird and think, huh. I wonder if I'm going to get a message from her in like six months. <laughs> when you got to like a Southern Baptist church in Alabama, because you're coming from the IFB, Southern Baptist is not always, but generally more liberal than the IFB. Um, yeah, they have certainly their own issues and problems. But as far as matters of, of dress and movies and music, they are much more permissive. So did you think, or, or did, did, do you think people, when you got there, thought that you were weird? Like, how how much is the how big is the gulf between like your regular SBC church and your full on IFB church, or were you deconstructed to the point where that didn't really matter for you personally? The gulf is is really big um, when you are coming from IFB to more lenient Baptist of any denomination. Church music was totally different. What people wore to church was totally different. Um, there were people 
in my church who abstained from alcohol religiously, but there were plenty of people who didn't and just believed that being overly drunk as a sin. They were generally very permissive of going to movies as long as they were somewhere kind of close to family friendly. Um, and none of that would have been allowed in the IFB. So the gulf is, is very large, but I don't think, I'm sure people did think I was weird. I was just so traumatized that I didn't really care. And also, I was used to being the weirdo everywhere that I went in the world. My entire life, I'd been swimming in culottes at public pools and family reunions. I, My entire life, I had been the only person in a skirt everywhere from the grocery store to horseback riding. The only place that I was used to fitting in was at church and at school. So, and this didn't feel like church to me because it was so different. So I don't think I really thought about whether people thought I was weird or not because I had been weird my whole life. Just wasn't much of a concern. So of course, just wearing a skirt or a dress is not going to be enough for the IFB. There are a ton of rules about what kind of skirt. So I think we need to get into that. Okay, let's go. Number one, skirt has to be long enough. The rule in my particular church and the churches that we spent the most time with was generally your skirt needs to be two inches below the bottom of your kneecap. And it has to stay there when you are standing, sitting, or walking. How much debate is there within the IFB movement about what the proper length for a skirt is? Oh, a ton. <laughs> so much. <laughs> So there are the Bible verses that get involved here. There are Bible verses about showing your nakedness, and that is often associated with showing thigh, which may or may not be an accurate interpretation of these verses. The IFB interpretation, though, is that in Bible times, when men wore shorter robes and women wore longer robes, men's robes were generally to the knee, and women's robes were something closer to floor length. Their interpretation is that when people talk about showing nakedness in the Bible, like when King David danced naked before the Lord, that he had his robe wrapped up around his waist so that his thighs would have been exposed. And nakedness equals thighs. Nakedness equals thighs is very much the standard. So they will literally say things like showing your thigh is showing nakedness. So a skirt that's two or three inches above your knee is literally the same thing as walking around completely naked. But after that, like the thigh is bad is pretty standard throughout the IFB. But past that, there is just a ton of debate. Really liberal IFB churches will say skirts have to go to the middle of your kneecap or skirts have to hit the top of your kneecap. I remember being at Hiles Anderson, like really rebellious girls would have skirts that flashed a kneecap when walking or sitting. <laughs> and then they'd have to like, scooch them way down on their hips to pass dress check. A more mainstream IFB position is that skirts are supposed to be roughly two inches below the bottom of your knee. The idea is with a skirt that long, you're pretty likely to never accidentally flash part of your thigh since your thigh is nakedness. A lot of stricter IFB encourage or even mandate skirts that go to T-length, which is T-length as it covers the widest part of your calf which is very unfair to people like me who have fantastic calf muscles. Some churches within the IFB do require ankle length or floor length skirts, although that's a lot less common. 
And these aren't like just rules for how you dress in church. These are rules that you have to obey at all times. Yeah, absolutely. Everything in this episode is something that you're expected to do all of the time, even when you're sleeping, unless you're married. I will specify if something was only a rule, like at my school that I went to, or at a particular college, if it's different. But I grew up following these rules 24-7. To illustrate, when I was a tiny baby, I was two weeks old. Um, I was born in the middle of a brutal Northwest Indiana winter. The winter that I was born, it got so cold outside some days that cars wouldn't start because some like, I don't know, coolant or gas or something will freeze if it gets down like 20, 30 below zero. And my mom had bought me footy pajamas because that's what you put on little babies when it's cold. But she felt so guilty for putting me in pants that she stopped using them. Twenty. When I say twenty four seven, I mean twenty four seven. Like uh, applying modesty and and like gender clothing rules to infants to like newborns is just beyond the pale to me. I don't get it. That's nuts. There were other safety issues with these modesty rules. Uh, I know I've told this one on the podcast before, but when I was at Hiles Anderson, there was this one semester when fire alarms kept going off at inopportune times, mostly in the middle of the night. We female students were required to wear a skirt and full dress code in order to leave the dorms. Even if there's a fire, you better be modest while you're evacuating the burning building. You, you, so you would sleep in like a, a skirt or you would... what? Yeah, like- I usually slept in culottes. Because it was the most comfortable. Hiles Anderson rules were interesting because we were not allowed to wear pants underneath a skirt outside of the dorm. So even for going soul winning, when we would be out door to door evangelizing, sometimes in brutal cold, sometimes in very deep snow, we were not allowed to wear pants underneath a skirt to keep us warm. Because pants are an abomination to the Lord. But for some reason, we were allowed to wear pajama pants in the dorms at the college, but they had to be covered up with a skirt or a robe to go down the hall to use the restroom in the single-sex dorms. (laughs) So it's a sin to wear pants to stay warm. It's not a sin to wear pants if you're going to sleep, but it's a sin if other people might see you wearing pants, so you have to put a skirt over it, even though there are no men allowed in the dorms. (laughs) It doesn't make very much sense. (sighs) And I was not wearing pants to sleep in at Hiles Anderson because I still believed that it was a sin, so it didn't really apply to me. I'm not even close to being done with skirts, though. In addition to the length issue... They also had to be flowing and couldn't show any curve of your body. There's a scripture verse in the New Testament where the Greek word translated as modesty is correlated with the idea of a loose flowing garment. Some of you may remember there was a trend around like 2007 to 2009 where trumpet skirts or mermaid skirts were really popular, like skirts that sit very close to the body throughout the hips and thighs and then flare out around the knees. Those were very problematic because anything that cupped was not allowed. What is cupping, you ask? I will tell you, reluctantly. Cupping means if you stand sideways. If you look at a person who's wearing a skirt standing sideways, the skirt goes out from the waist and then falls over their butt and hips, right? Like that's what a skirt looks like 
on a person who's standing sideways to you. If the skirt comes back in at all under the widest part of your butt, it's too tight. Same for the hips. If you're looking at a person standing, looking at you dead on. If the overall width of the skirt at the hem isn't wider than your hips, it's too tight. This rules out a lot of cuts of skirts and a lot of pencil skirts get are right out because of this rule. It also rules out different materials like silk that naturally stick to the body more. Anything bias cut is a recipe for disaster. So they'll love like if you're like a Civil War reenactor. We did love our circle skirts. (laughs) Skirts could have a short slit for ease of movement. The IFB like to call it a walking slit. I don't know if there's any other kind, but it could be no more than four inches long, no matter how long the skirt was. And it could, the slit in your skirt couldn't extend higher than the minimum skirt length. So you may or may not remember, there was a real world trend of floor length maxi skirts with high slits, like up to the knee or up a little bit above the knee. Have you ever seen somebody wear one of those? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. So if you had that skirt, you had to sew the slit down to four inches above the hem of the skirt. Because no matter how long the skirt is, four inches is the maximum. So that would kind of make you walk like a penguin in a maxi skirt. Um, You also were not supposed to use safety pins to fix any skirt length issue or slit length issue. And I hypothesized that the reason was that they thought, oh, well, you can just use the safety pin to pass the dress check and then take the safety pin out and be a harlot walking around with your slit that's five inches long instead of four. It does make sense, though, why with these rules specifically, you look at somebody who is fundamentalist and there is such a specific way that they always dress because the Venn diagram of clothes that are allowed and clothes that are at all convenient or pragmatic to wear on a daily basis, the overlap is so small. Yeah, this is starting to get into why there is such a particular look. And Gavi, I know you know a lot about men's fashion, but you don't know quite so much about women's fashion. You have a good eye for fashion, but you're not not involved in women's fashion. But you can look and you're not, we're never involved in fundamentalism, but you can look at a person and there's a look, but you can't quite define it. So now this is me defining it. Uh, The one other random skirt rule is you can't, uh, we can't wear a wrap skirt that hasn't been fixed. You have to have, so you cannot wear a wrap skirt and then safety pin it down the side to make sure it doesn't blow open, that's not good enough. It has to be physically sewn. Okay, I think that's all for skirts. That's a lot of skirt rules. <laughs> Until I remember like 12 more things. Oh God, this episode's never going to end. We're going to uh, take a little break and then we're going to be right back. <laughs> Let's um, go take and- up the offering and we'll come back. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about what's after skirts. Is it... Uh, um- we, can do, we can do blouse rules. Blouse rules. Okay, let's, let's go. Let's do it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. We are back from our break. Uh, we just talked about skirt rules. We spent a lot of time talking about skirt rules. Uh, now we're going to talk about blouse rules. And then after blouse rules, we're going to talk about just everything else that has to do like all of like the little detail like all of the like accessory rules shoe rules things like that so it's all coming later in this episode uh so so i traumatized you a moment ago with the definition of cupping as it refers to skirts unsurprisingly this is also the standard for how loose a top should be and now that you explained this to me i like when i look at photos of you like that you send me from like your fundy days or like if i if i'm we're looking at like pictures of fundies or i think we had the thing where we had listeners in our facebook group post pictures of themselves when they were fundy uh yes and like uh, their fashions are like i can see why certain styles are really popular like if there is a style that comes in at like a mainstream fashion style that comes in that it, it like is at all fundy rules can like compliant or it can be slightly modified to be fundy rules compliant they'll wear that style for years and years and years and years and years and like many years after it's no longer fashionable anymore so number one this is one reason that we all wore a lot of blazers when blazers were really popular because a structured fabric like a thick fabric like a blazer would be made out of with padding and seams and things that goes out at the chest and then nips in at the waist is totally allowed as long as as long as the cut is structured and the material is very thick or stiff material it's totally fine so this is the reason you'll see a lot of blazers or a lot of cardigans or blousey shirts with a belt over them or very loose dresses with a belt at the waist because if you want to wear something that has a waistline and is a thinner fabric or a more flowy fabric, you can do it if the shirt is super loose and then you add the belt to give yourself some kind of shape. 
Yeah, when I look at pictures of you from like 2010, 2011, like that era, I'm trying to f- like the style that I would s- describe. Like it's giving piano recital meets Christmas card photo, or like <laughs> you know, or like class picture day almost. Yes. <laughs> I think most, if not all, of the photos you've seen of me from that era are in dressy clothes, like what I wore to church or to college classes. But a big part of the reason for that is that I didn't wear casual clothes all that often, unless I was cleaning something and there wouldn't be pictures of that. So Hiles Anderson mandated their own little culty version of business professional type clothing for every day. And you were like a pastor's kid too. So if there was a rule, like you couldn't even be close to the line on it, or it would reflect poorly on your family. It would reflect negatively on your father's ministry. And that would like possibly negatively affect your family's ability to feed itself. Yep. And my marriage prospects within the IFB as well. When I was growing up as a pastor's kid, I was always told that I had to exceed whatever rules there were, I had to be stricter than the rules because I had to be a good example for all other teen girls and young women in the church. And then at Hiles Anderson, there was really no such thing as being close to the line because everyone was held to such a high standard. There were dress checks before chapel on random days. If you failed a dress check, You just had to go back to your room and change, and then you would get in trouble for being late to chapel. And I personally, I didn't want to risk it simply because I didn't want to have to deal with it. Um, Once in a while at Hiles Anderson, maybe I would wear a skirt that had a safety pin slit instead of sewn and just hope that there wasn't a dress check that day. But that was about the extent of my rebellion as a Hiles Anderson student. So your shirt has to be either loose and flowing or very structured. The number one neckline rule was no visible cleavage, but they measured necklines by finger width to give something that everybody could be measured by. So how you do the finger test is you put three fingers together, kind of like the Hunger Games salute, and then you turn your hand sideways parallel to the floor. Put your pointer finger right on the hollow of your neck between your collarbones And then your top has to come up at least to the bottom of your third finger. As you can imagine, this varies a lot in difficulty depending on the size of your fingers and the size of your chest. Because some people could get away with almost anything. And then some people had a lot of struggles (laughs) related to this rule. So let's talk about um, neckline hacks. (laughs) There are a lot. So one thing you could do, which almost everybody did, was wear a black or a white camisole top under absolutely everything you wore or a colored camisole top that matched your outfit. This helped with the cupping issue because if you wore a tight camisole, it would kind of smush everything into a shape that your outer layers wouldn't cling to as much. But often... The camisoles that you could buy in stores would not be high-necked enough to actually pass dress check, especially if you were somebody like me who was like a 30 triple D in high school. Ow. Was not convenient. RIP your back. (laughs) Yes. Um, And my fashion as a teenager, which I cared about more at the time. So there are options for dealing with this. 
you could pin or sew the straps of your undershirt shorter. This had the disadvantage of making your undershirt dig into your armpits because you'd have to take the straps up so high to get the front of it high enough that then the material under your arms is like digging into your armpits. But that also helps you pass the sleeve rules. So it's not all bad. (laughs) The other disadvantage. So, okay. So you could pen or sew your camisole strap super short. It did work. Pinning it was a absolute pain in the butt. Like think about trying to drive a safety pin through an eighth of an inch of material and make it not be lumpy on your back where it was pinned. It was, it was a pain. Or if the safety pin comes undone, you're going to be stabbing yourself in the, in the shoulder or the in back. In the shoulder, and you can't yeah. reach it because it's behind, like, it's behind your shoulder. And then you're having other people trying to pin you, and they're poking you with the pin. It's, it's a nightmare. The other disadvantage of using a camisole or undershirt to make a top high enough was that it was looked down upon to have the camisole showing, like the hem of that thing showing at the bottom of your shirt. And there, here's where we get into sub, sub, sub rules about camisole showing at the bottom of your, of your shirt. Oh, God. I aggressively adjusted my headphones <laughs> to prepare for this. So if you had a bright colored camisole that was meant to match your outfit and the little strip of fabric that showed at the bottom of your shirt appeared to be a coordinated part of your outfit, that would be okay. If not, if it looks like it's out of place and it grabs attention, that's not okay and you need to tuck it into your skirt. However, if you tuck it into your your skirt and the outline of the material on your hips shows through your skirt, that is also immodest because any kind of like bulge or wrinkle or underclothing line showing is drawing men's attention and it's immodest. So it's kind of a catch-22 situation. The word for this that I learned is an eye trap. So if your camisole or undershirt was lace trimmed at the hem, and that was really in style for a while, it is absolutely not allowed because according to Jack Scott, it looked too much like lingerie. I heard him preach that to a room full of teenagers. I'm fine. Was that also the same uh, sermon where he talked about the looking down the shirt of a teenage girl as he was signing her bible yes that is the same sermon this guy is a creep and he was arrested for being a uh for for what for sex trafficking he went to jail for like nine years uh man act is what got him same reason jack scop um silky material camisoles or undershirts and those trimmed with lace at the top at the neckline were also not allowed So when the trend shifted to like the lace trimmed top and bottom being in style, I remember all of us Fundy Girls like frantically buying up the plain ones. (laughs) So you could also get those modesty panels that I've talked about before that just clip onto your bra straps in the front. I showed these to my girlfriend and she was horrified. The I think what's the term for these? It's the um, chemisette. Is Yeah. We always just said modesty panels, but I'm sure there are a couple different terms. Yeah, I looked it up. If you're looking to for like uh uh what we're talking about here, let me Google it. 
uh, it's like a, a Shemi. If you look up Shemizet, if you type that into Google, first link is from Amazon. You can see like what it is that we're talking about. You can see how it's supposed to clip into the bra strap and basically just like cover up any opening, any any like skin that might be showing. Mm-hmm. I I googled clip in modesty panels and I got results for mock camisole modesty panels. So if you're look if you want to look at this monstrosity and ruin That's how your you find uh, it. <laughs> It's like you, you can just completely ruin your Google search uh, and, and your like targeted ads from this. So my biggest issue with those panels, they were convenient, but the clips were never quite tough enough. So you'd clip it and then it would just randomly pop off halfway through the day and you'd have to go fix it. And that was inconvenient. So I would generally clip it and then safety pin it. You're hearing a lot about safety pins, and I think I'm explaining very well why, as a fundy girl, you carry safety pins everywhere you go at all times. I was actually at a Halloween party a couple weeks ago, and I met somebody who was raised fundy, and we had a whole conversation about these things. And apparently, these were (laughs) the scourge of everybody's existence. Yeah. Um, You should ask the person you were talking to about carrying safety pins, and specifically, like, where did you put your safety pins? Because... I used to. So when I was younger, I would clip them into the hem of my skirt. I would just find a spot like on the side of my skirt where I could easily grab them and pin three or four safety pins to the inside of my skirt. So and when I got up in the morning, so they'd always be with me. And then I leveled up and life hacked because I realized that you could clip safety pins around your bra strap, like not poking it through the strap, but like around it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's even easier to get to. So then I would just have them. That was where I would keep them. It's a terrible solution to a problem that should have never existed in the first place. Terrible solution to a non-existent problem. (laughs) I'm sorry. No, all of this is just like so much extra bulk. Like I'm remembering how you're like how it felt on my body to wear all of this. Because even if you've got the clip-in modesty panel you probably still need like an undershirt or compression shirt or camisole or something because number one, it prevents cupping. But number two, if the outline of your modesty panel shows through your shirt, like the edge of the material makes an impression on the outside of your shirt, that's still immodest. So you need a modesty panel and then you need a camisole over it to squish it down. And then you wear your regular shirt. Um, or if you're wearing a button down, like a button up shirt, you need an undershirt in case there's a gap between the buttons. Also, gaps between buttons aren't allowed because that's immodest. So if you are a person with any kind of large chest, you have to pin safety pins in every single gap between your buttons, which was a pain. <laughs> I got really good at it, but it's still, it's, a, it's so obnoxious. So, like, think about this. It's a hot summer day. You have to go soul winning. So you're wearing either a long skirt in a thick material or you're wearing a thinner skirt with a slip. You're wearing basically a bulletproof bra because headlights are a sin. And then you have a cami or a compression shirt and a blouse over the top of that and maybe even a modesty panel pinned in as well. And then we haven't even gotten to hosiery and shoes yet. And you have to walk like three miles in summer heat. That sounds really uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what you, and you were in uh, like Chicago area. 
Yeah, Chicago area and St. Louis area because it was the same rules at my church growing up. And so it would be summer heat and summer humidity in yep. like Midwest. Oof. Like, I mean, that's that sounds really uncomfortable. I know like I would be drenched in sweat by the time that was over. I will tell you, it was super weird getting used to the feeling of wearing like a bra and a t-shirt, like a normal, mo- you know, <laughs> like a normal person not having extra tight layers on my body all the time was very odd at first. Like it's one whole psychological thing to get used to wearing stuff that you would have considered immodest your whole life. Like that's one whole like psychological thing you have to do. But feeling sweat actually run down your back for the first time as an adult is a totally different thing that you also have to get used to. Like the psychological sensation of wearing clothes that were previously not allowed and the physical sensation are two, it's actually two things that you're dealing with. Um, I remember feeling sweat go down my back and thinking, oh, that's what people are talking about. Because if you aren't wearing multiple layers, it actually runs down your back instead of just soaking your clothes. Wow. Huh. Gross. I thought that was just an expression. <laughs> Uh. Yeah, it, it's very it's very weird because you're suddenly having like normal experiences that everybody has. Getting out of a cult will do that to you, man. Yeah. Or you like you have to get used to the sound of walking in pants. It's a different sound. See, that's not even something that I've ever noticed. Yeah. There's a sound to it even. Wow. Yeah, it, it's Oof. very it's just very disconcerting because those little tiny sensory experiences that you're so used to your entire life change and it very much feels like being an alien on a new planet so when you're getting used to like the sound of walking in pants more are you more likely to be partial to like a different kind of pants that like you you could wear jeans and those are cotton and they would sound like i don't want to say kind of normal but like and then you might wear something that would be like polyester based and that might have like more of a f- 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 kind of sound and you would prefer one to the other and you would base your choice off of what sound they made? That could certainly be a thing, especially for people who are sensory sensitive in any kind of way. Huh. I don't think I've ever worn like wind pants because I don't like the sound. Interesting. I mean, I do feel like if you have sensory issues at all in any way, then being IFB sounds like it's like, yeah, if you have any, yeah, any kind of sensory sensitivity, it's going to suck for you. And then also, if you decide to change the things that you don't like, you have to get used to new sensory experiences, which is also probably going to suck for you. Oh, when I, uh, that was what I was going to tell you. When I first started wearing pants, I kept thinking when I would walk, I would think somebody was coming up behind me. Really? Yeah, because the the sound of it, I had never heard that sound coming from my own legs before. I had only heard it in the context of someone is coming up behind me. And that person, you're conditioned to think that person is invariably a man. Right. That's who you're used to wearing pants. Wow, that's... Yeah. So I would uh, consistently, like walking down the street or walking through a room, think that there was somebody right behind me. So you'd be like looking over your shoulder. Yeah. Or... Wow. So it's very weird. Like, I, all respect to Jill Duggar and all these other women and people, AFAB people raised in fundamentalism who 
are coming out about the psychological effects of trying to dress differently for the first time. 100% respect all of that. I have lived that experience as well. But I feel like we sometimes overlook the sensory side of it and how weird that was too. You know who's got a lot of great content about f- figuring out your own fashion sense after leaving fundamentalism is Liz uh, Hunter. Liz Hunter. Liz Hunter. Hell yeah. She's been a guest on our show before, um, and you can find her on social media. I think she's on she's on TikTok and like Instagram and stuff at that Liz Hunter. Absolutely yeah. recommend checking <clears throat> out what she, all the stuff that she's got to say on this topic. Fashion icon. Truly. Okay, we should talk about shirt sleeves. Oh, another rule. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so many rules. Halfway done. So many rules. Shirt sleeves. Um, My church that I grew up in was a lot more permissive than a lot of other IFB churches. In my church, they needed to be at least a few inches long, like at least maybe two to three inches past the point of the shoulder. Many IFB churches don't allow cap sleeves or like anything similar to butterfly sleeves. Do you know what? Cap sleeves or butterfly sleeves are? Cap sleeves are like the little ones. Yeah, the little bitty ones where it's the sleeve is more like a hat. The sleeve is not a cylinder that is sewn onto the shirt. Like a t shirt sleeve is a cylinder, right? Yeah. That is sewn onto the main body of the shirt. A cap sleeve is more like a half circle that is sewn on to the front and the back of the shirt, but doesn't go all the way under the armpit. Are butterfly sleeves the ones that like show off your shoulder? They're like have like a gap in them. No, butterfly sleeves are similar to a cap sleeve, but like huge and flowy, like a bell shape that float kind of floats around or flaps back and forth on your arm. I I typed butterfly sleeves into Google, and the first thing that popped up was butterfly kisses, that song, and I'm like. Butterfly sleeves. Oh, I see what you're talking about. These are, they're almost like princess sleeves. Yeah. My church growing up did allow cap sleeves and butterfly sleeves with some additional rules. The entire, so your entire shoulder up to the point where it, so where it's parallel to the floor, up to the point where it goes downward and turns into your arm, all of that, your entire point of your shoulder. And maybe an inch or two below that needed to be covered. And if you lifted up your arms, it was okay to see a little bit of your armpit. But if the top was low cut under your arms, where it would show like the very top of your rib cage under your armpits, that was a no-go. But if it was cut very high right up underneath the armpit, it was probably okay. So tank tops completely banned. No tank tops. Tank tops are completely banned. I, I really wish that... I had turned my camera on for this section because the the body motions that I am doing trying to explain this are probably hilarious. So, but like, so if you had like a dress that was sleeveless, you would need to be wearing a t shirt or something underneath it, right? That's right. So you you okay. can either wear a shirt under it or you can wear a cardigan and sweater or something over it. But this brings me to another IFB life hack. God, if your shirt sleeves <clears throat> or dress sleeves are too short, you can just wear a different t-shirt underneath. This is why you will still, to this day, and probably as long as fundies exist, you will see fundy girls with a pretty dress and just like white t-shirt sleeves coming out from under it. Although, of course, you could wear like a blazer or a cardigan or a different shirt or something over top of that. 
Interesting. Okay. I, I've definitely seen that look where you see somebody wearing a dress and you think that's not usually a dress that somebody wears a t-shirt underneath because yeah. it, it's Rod, the younger Rodriguez girls are very well known for this. So, you know, like cap sleeves, butterfly sleeves, those are all like, I mean, I didn't totally know what those were and I'm more interested in fashion and in clothes than I would say most fundy men are or most fundy pastors are. Yeah, so probably. are the rules about our cap sleeves and butterfly sleeves a lot because all the rules have to come from the pastor that's where the authority right. is if your local pastor is the pastor the one who's like saying cap sleeves yes butterfly sleeves no. like is he or is it like where he sees something that he thinks is wrong and he's like i don't like that that's banned or is it more like i'm gonna delegate this responsibility to like my wife it really could be any of those things. You could see a pastor who sees a piece of clothing on a person or on a mannequin and then gets his wife and says, what is this called? I think it's bad. And then his wife tells him, oh, those are butterfly sleeves. And then he writes it into the rules for the Christian school or tells the youth pastor and the youth pastor's wife that butterfly sleeves are not allowed and preaches about it from the pulpit. They would actually preach about butterfly sleeves from the pulpit. Sure. Like commonly, eh, maybe not, but plausibly, absolutely. So how often was like modesty or like specific modesty rules a topic? With my dad as my pastor, modesty was a topic often and not wearing pants was a topic often. But other than that, specific rules were very much not a not typical, not typically something he would preach about from the pulpit. With other pastors, of course, with Jack Scott, that's all he could talk about was teenage girls' bodies and what they should and shouldn't be wearing. Uh, and with other, there are other IFB preachers that are really known for having a little pet topic about teenage girls' modesty. Jack Scott is not the only one. That's really He's just gross. The one that went to jail. Yep. And then you'd also hear about all of this stuff from like teen camp, like teen camp speakers, or your youth pastor's wife, maybe, or your Sunday school teacher in the teen girl's Sunday school class, or things like that. So it might not be something that you're hearing about in the main sermon on Sunday, but it is something like when you're, that would be enforced to you by somebody else in the ministry who wasn't the main pastor because he has bigger things to worry about than- Right. But modesty as a topic is something you're going to be hearing about in main sermons pretty commonly. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. I think modesty in general is probably in the top 20 or so topics that are most likely to come up. Okay, yeah, it makes sense. It's like how like the president will be talking about, we need investments in our roads and, uh, and transportation, but then the secretary of transportation will be the guy that is like the point person on that issue who's going to be you know, spearheading that, those policy initiatives. Okay, that yeah, makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of IFB, I know this entire discussion about cap sleeves versus butterfly sleeves versus actual sleeves is so incredibly niche, but these are the things that made a huge difference to us. I remember going to, like, I think cap sleeves were allowed at church, but not at school, which is weird because my school was owned by my church and like a subsidiary of my church. And I think they were not allowed at Hiles Anderson, but I wore them at Hiles Anderson all the time and never got in trouble for it. And I remember going to youth camps or youth conferences where they were or were not allowed in the written dress code that was passed out for people who went to youth camps and youth conferences. 
and having to pack based on what was allowed at this particular church that I was going to for a camp or a conference. And the rules for whatever youth camp or, 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 or youth conference or whatever that you would be going to, it would basically just be copy pasted from whatever church was hosting it, whatever their local modesty rules were. And whatever right. either their pastor saw and didn't like, or their pastor said to his wife, I need you to make this decision or the youth pastor or whatever. When I went to fine arts competition at Park Meadows Baptist Church, which is the church that SM Davis pastored, that church is, as, as I later found out, heavily Gothard affiliated, heavily IBLP affiliated. And SM Davis is like in really good with a lot of IBLP people. And a lot of the kids that I went to fine arts with were IBLP related. Also, uh, IBLP has considerably longer skirt length rules than the mainstream IFB. And I always had to pack my longest skirts for fine arts competition because their rule was T length. So covers the widest part of your calf. That, okay, that that makes so there is like variability, but it's like I mean it's like in any sub community, there's going to be extremely there, there's going to be things that people see from the outside. Then there's going to be extremely niche things that people in that community only like. If you know, you know. This is the thing we fight about. Yeah, and it just so happens that it's cap sleeves versus butterfly sleeves versus full sleeves and. A lot of IFB, I think the more standard IFB line is a standard t-shirt sleeve being the minimum acceptable length. So it needs to be a, a cylinder sleeve that goes some distance down your arm. There are plenty of IFB that mandate sleeves have to go halfway between your shoulder and your elbow. There are plenty of IFB that mandate elbow length sleeves. Um, it's pretty, pretty rare for IFB to say long sleeves, wrist length sleeves only, but I'm sure there are a few churches out there who do that. Uh, once in a while, you'll also see IFB, especially in very warm climates that allow very modest sleeveless tops, uh, something that's cut more like a muscle shirt, like a t-shirt with the sleeves cut off, not something that's cut like a women's tank top where there's more scooped out around the arms, but more of a muscle shirt style, sometimes that can even be allowed. One thing my church was pretty strict about was that no sheer material was allowed. So have you ever seen a top or a dress where the whole top or the whole dress has a lace overlay, and then there's a matching lining underneath the lace, but maybe on the sleeves, there's no lining. So it's like a three-quarter length sleeve that's just all lace and you can see the skin through the lace or maybe at the neckline of the dress, there's like a sweetheart neckline and then lace comes up over the top of that neckline. So none of that was allowed. Even if let's say the lining on the neckline of this dress comes up to a modest approved height, but then there's an additional inch of lace above the neck, above the lining of the dress, you, that's still, that's still not allowed. Or so that's even still banned. Still banned. Or even if you have like sleeves on a top where the lining comes down halfway to your elbow or the lining comes down to your elbow, but then the sleeve contain the lace part of the sleeve continues down to your wrist, still banned. Yeah. It, or if like the sleeves were sheer tool, like that's also not okay because then it's technically a sleeveless shirt. So, okay. So it's basically like 
they're they're enforcing this is the intent of the rule and even though you can do these things to kind of get around it we're still going to say this violates the intent of the rule even if it doesn't violate the specific terms and conditions you felt like okay the general ifb say sayings and rules are if a skirt has a slit it's the same thing as if the whole skirt were the length of the highest part of the slit and if something is sheer or lace it doesn't count like it, it is as if that material were not there at all so if you want to wear something sheer or lace you have to fully line it um the other thing about shirts and probably my least favorite rule as a teenager was that no writing or graphics around the bust line was allowed. Mm. So a shirt that had a picture that fell right in the center of your chest or a couple lines of writing across the chest was not okay. If the picture was so big that it took up the whole front of the shirt, that would be allowed. Or conversely, if the picture was like a small badge type logo that just sits on like one side of your chest, like up very high near your shoulder, that's fine. So I looked at our Threadless shop <laughs> so I can give some examples. Merch plug. I love it. <laughs> the the Brain in a Jar logo t-shirt might be okay. The Love is Love pride shirt would be okay if the writing were just, if the font were a little bit bigger to take up more of the shirt. The Mountain Moo shirt is an absolute no. That's a great example of exactly what's banned. The King James Bible shirt, the logo is really big. So the King James Bible shirt is okay. I do feel like I've let you down by designing any t-shirts that would be deemed acceptable for the IFB. <laughs> so, no, okay. they're just for newer deconstructorinos. So um, yeah, if, if you're not used to, if you don't want to violate all the rules just quite yet, you can buy one of those shirts and then eventually maybe you'll turn it into a crop top or you'll uh, yeah, uh, we support this <laughs> turning any shirt into a crop top really um so but so question um i guess so for t-shirts because t-shirts are, are generally maybe a little bit tighter do the same rules apply to like a hoodie or like a sweatshirt something that is like more of like a, a piece of clothing you wear for warmth rather than like it being like the, i guess the main thing that you're wearing to cover yourself same rules. Same rules. Okay, so if you got like a college style hoodie, that would be banned. If you got like a a a, a it said like I don't know, you're you're a Bama like fan. Harvard across the front. Yeah, or if it said University of Alabama, um, mm -hmm. Crimson Tide or something across the front, then that would be banned. <clears throat> yeah, this absolutely makes wearing college gear a nightmare. Now that you bring it up, <laughs> that is really annoying though, because it. I mean, it just does seem like. It invariably it does feel like a lot of these rules were made by men who don't really understand the world of women's clothes and don't understand that if you make rules really specific then like one specific rule could make somebody's life way more inconvenient and way more expensive and that rule is really just kind of like oh i saw something and i thought it was kind of I didn't like it. So a lot of it also is going to depend on body type, especially with this graphics on shirts rule, because think about it Two people, like if one person is tall and very thin and the other person is shorter and curvier, they could wear the same exact hoodie. And for one of them, the writing might fall right across the bust line and the other person, it might not, it might be, it might fall up higher on their chest. It just depends on, Everything from the size of a person's body, their height, the breadth of their shoulders, it's totally variable. But if the writing happens to fall right across the bust line on your body and nowhere else on the shirt, the shirt is banned. 
Yeah, I just get the sense that the IFB dress codes like just punish women for even having bodies. Yeah, because I think the more obvious problem is if you're a person with a larger chest or you're a person with full hips, your options for what you can buy at all and what styles you can wear at all get real limited real fast. And that is obviously a problem. But also, if you're a person who's really thin and doesn't have those curves, you're not exempted from that many of the dress code rules. You get a break in some places, but there are additional pitfalls. So one would be a rule is if you bend over and your shirt falls away from your chest with gravity and somebody could hypothetically see down your shirt like Jack Scott, that's an issue. In my experience, curvier people or people with a larger chest tend to be able to find things that fit more snugly in that upper chest area. And people who are very thin often can't get a top that's tight enough to not open up when they bend over, but still passes all the other requirements about not being too tight. So there's pitfalls for everybody. And I think this is definitely used to discriminate against anybody who is not extremely thin. And I am going to talk about that. And it's used to demonize people who are curvy or in any way not thin. However, it comes back to bite the very thin people in the butt as well. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like everybody's body becomes their individual cross that they have to bear, especially if they're women. And that is... Absolutely. So I want to clarify first, all blouse rules apply to the top of a dress and all skirt rules apply to the bottom of a dress. Shopping for dresses was hard. It was tough. Um, I remember buying my, um, my graduation dress. And now I will sometimes wear like an 8, 10, 12, 14 because quote unquote women's clothing sizes are a disaster um, and not consistent. But now like that's my range. Like once in a while I'll need an 8 and once in a while I'll need a 14 and usually I'm in a 10 or a 12. But at the time when I graduated high school, my general range was like six, eight, maybe a 10. I was usually a dress size eight. And my high, I remember the high school graduation dress I bought was a size 14 because that was how I could get it to fit. And then I cut it way down where I could. So you have to buy too big and then get it tailored. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of times. It's just, it's funny because now sometimes some dresses of 14 is what fits me. Um, and that's fine and good. But when I was in high school, I was absolutely not a 14. Absolutely not. And it's it's ludicrous that I was buying literally three or four sizes too big for me. That's so, like, I mean, sizes just also aren't consistent anyway. Sizes are made up. They don't matter. I cut tags. There are certain pieces of clothing where the number on the tag bothers me. So I cut it out because I don't deal with that. But... Uh, yeah, you would you would have to buy clothing that did not fit you and then cut it down in order to fit you. That's really annoying. That's just ugh. I mean, it I mean it is so clear that these rules were made were made by men because they just or they just like don't have any idea the actual level of effort that it takes to that that women have to go through on a daily basis to actually just get there. Cuz like our clothes are just like S M L XL, 2X, it's just like that. Mm-hmm. And then your pants are just like, what is your waist size and how tall are you? You know. Yeah, and, and the craziest thing is that pants are 
more consistent, not entirely completely consistent, because sometimes a 31 is not really a 31. No, but they're closer to consistent. Not excellent. So um, let's, uh, we've talked about skirt rules. We've talked about uh, shirt rules. We're going to take another small break here, and then we're going to come back and talk about accessories. We're going to talk about shoes and just a couple of other things. And then we're going to wrap this episode. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, so speaking of effort, should we talk about shoe rules? Let's talk about shoe rules and speaking of things that aren't consistent within their sizes between brands. Yeah. Uh, there are so many shoe rules that changed so many different times throughout my life and through different IFB institutions that it can be a little hard for me to think back and keep track of exactly what was a rule where. So many IFB do not allow open toe shoes at all in church scenarios. At my church that I grew up in, I was allowed to wear open toed shoes for church as long as they had a heel so it doesn't just look like a flat sandal it needs to look dressier than a flat sandal i did also have to wear hose with my open-toed shoes which is not the vibe (laughs) but to my recollection i was not allowed to wear open-toed shoes or sandals out soul winning that 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 does seem like it's a weird rule because if i were going to go out soul winning and I were going to be walking several miles in the day. Maybe it's hot out or maybe it's just like, I mean, you're walking on concrete. I don't think I would want to be in sandals. I think I would want to be in sneakers. Oh, no, 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 no sneakers for soul winning. <laughs> um, sneakers were just not allowed for most church related activities, except for youth group or summer camp or like cleaning the church. How come? Because when you're out soul winning, 
you are representing God and the church and sneakers are too casual. We weren't allowed any denim out soul winning either. No, and no t-shirts. So usually I wore something similar to what I'd wear to Wednesday night church, like maybe a khaki skirt or a plain black skirt and a casual blouse. Guys wore dress pants or casual pants and a polo shirt or a button down shirt and tie, but no jacket. Okay. But that's like, that really seems not fair to me because you can have, I mean, men's dress shoes range from zero support to actually pretty comfortable and basically like tennis shoes, but they look like dress shoes. Yeah. I mean, like I, if it was hot out, I wouldn't necessarily want to be wearing khakis and a polo, but that's far from the worst thing that I could be wearing. Like that's the kind of thing that you would wear on like a golf course. And that's yeah, like it. And I would wear like a khaki skirt and a polo shirt. Like that was something that I would wear. But there are all these, as discussed, there are all these layers of fixing in order to make that happen and hosiery. Yeah. I mean, honestly, though, I do think that if I were having to choose between wearing comfortable shoes and comfortable clothes and I were going out soul winning, I think I would pick comfortable shoes because, like, I, w- I would just personally, for me, I would take being hot over having sore feet. So were there any like comfortable shoe options for when you were out soul winning? Uh, Clarks. I remember Clarks were allowed. Uh, I had some Clarks flats that were not like woven flats, but not sandals that I wore in the warmer months. And usually in the winter, you would want to wear boots because it was cold or rainy or snowy. Yeah, boots are fine. Boots aren't bad. Boots are <laughs> yeah. Boots are fine if you can afford good boots, but we couldn't. So I was wearing fashion boots, like I was wearing suede boots with a wedge heel because mm. those were the only boots I had and docks were not allowed at all because they're associated with rebellious culture. And menswear style boots were not allowed for women because of Deuteronomy 22:5. Weirdly, Oxford style shoes were allowed for women. But menswear style boots were not. It's the same reason I was not allowed to wear neckties for fashion reasons. I had somehow seen photos of Avril Lavigne and I like desperately wanted to do the button down shirt with the open vest and the necktie thing um, with, of course, my Mm -hmm. skirt. (laughs) But I was not allowed because ties are that which pertaineth unto a man. I mean, but with a skirt, that's still a cute outfit. That would be. That would have been a cute outfit. And I was so sad that I was not allowed to wear it. And also blazers were fine. And isn't that also what pertaineth unto a man? It makes no sense. I don't know. It just seems like, because I mean, we've discussed this at other times. I mean, it's, it just seems to me that very arbitrary, like everything is, is just based on the tastes of whatever man is the one that's making the rules. And if a man making the rules thinks, you know, a pertaineth unto a man garment is cute on women then women are allowed to wear it but if he thinks it's ugly then it's banned is kind of the and i somebody who went to hiles anderson in like 2011 needs to chime in in the comments on our facebook group or subreddit or social somewhere and tell me if you remember this because i feel like i remember there being a fundy drama about whether it was okay for girls to wear ties as headbands i'm not this may this may be a (laughs) cult fever dream i'm not sure i need somebody to i don't know amy alicia some of y'all jump in there and tell me if i remember this correctly or not um i do want to take a moment to complain about the current generation of ifb youths 
um, because I have seen recently videos of a youth conference at First Baptist Church of Hammond. And there are boys there in khaki pants. There are boys there in those shoes that kind of look like dressy sneakers that kind Mm. of look like dress shoes on the top, but have a rubber sole, like a white or black rubber sole. And I've also seen girls at youth conference in like Vans style shoes. And none of that was allowed when I was in the IFB. And uh, (laughs) I think y'all are going soft and liberal and I do not appreciate it. I think that if Jack Howes were alive today, he would be rolling over in his grave with oh all of the... Oh my god, Jack Howes. <laughs> Nothing makes me more salty than when I see IFB teenagers now who are like their up-and-coming crop of like sold out, going to Hiles Anderson, young people in the independent fundamental Baptist movement, the next generation to bring the world to Christ, and they're wearing all of that was completely not allowed for me because you know we're ifb we never change we go by the old paths we stick by the book like no you don't well you know i I wasn't allowed to wear that i would have got expelled from my high school for that i mean but like when you were telling me about like going to hiles anderson that's like what they were saying to you is that they were saying well we had to do it this way and it hardened us up so that we could be the evangelists that we needed to be and that was the whole point was that it was a pain in the ass to do it and that you were basically at boot camp yeah and these young kids coming up in the ifb and these kids who are like 15 16 17 18 now are so soft compared to (laughs) And I know I sound like a hacker, um, <laughs> particularly <laughs> hacker is, is like an old school, uh, old school Hiles Anderson person. And particularly Steve and Jerry, if she's listening, are <laughs> cracking up at me, I'm sure. Like, I know I have several, we have several listeners who went to Hiles Anderson more in my dad's generation, and they are probably dying laughing at me sounding like such a hacker right now. <laughs> But seriously, I mean, these kids are soft. <laughs> anyway. They don't I'm, know how you had it. They don't know. They don't know. They're such babies. Oh, my <laughs> God. Look at pictures of like the graduate. Have you seen the pictures of the graduating class of Hiles Anderson Preacher Boys? I have not seen these pictures. When it comes around early May, start looking at their Facebook page interesting why what am i gonna These see is it like- 22 year old baby-faced kids just they look like children anyway i mean you showed me some like promo videos for the school and there was like this dude is like i this is me and this is my wife and i'm like you're a child mm-hmm. it's like literally like the this i mean he's, he seemed like a nice young man i guess he's like i am i am 21 years old and this is my wife and i'm like you look like you are 15 he's like he i'm like you look like a kid kid and i'm not i'm not clowning on any listeners who are early 20s or people who get married young because um being in your early 20s is something you really can't help um and being married young is sometimes the right choice for people but these it's these guys in particular i'm making fun of so back to shoe rules I am pretty sure that Hiles Anderson did not allow open-toed shoes for classes or church. I checked my rule book and it's not in there, but the year that I went to Hiles Anderson was the year that they pared down the rule book 
So on paper, there were fewer rules, but in practice, you could get in trouble for a lot more things because everything else was left up to the staff's discretion. And I really don't feel that we were allowed to wear open-toed for class or church. But I know that they had to allow open-toed shoes for banquets because I still have the shoes that I wore for Valentine's banquet, and they are open-toed sandals. So I'm not 100% sure. Hmm. So all of these different institutions that I passed through in my Fundy experience, so my church, my school, which was part of my church, my fine arts competition, different conferences and teen conferences, teen camps that I went to, and then Hiles Anderson, and then also Pensacola Christian College, all of them had different heel height rules. I can't remember what the heel height rule was in high school, but I think it was 2.75 inches. That's so specific. Uh, Hiles Anderson, I think, had a three-inch heel height rule, like three inches or less. There was not a hard and fast rule at my church, although my youth pastor would complain if I wore heels that he thought were too high because they made me taller than him. And then sometimes (laughs) he would preach a sermon (laughs) in youth group about the sinfulness of high heels when I just happened to be wearing high heels to church that day. Sidebar, I used to think my youth pastor was like the worst of the worst of the fundies. Like, and then I grew up and I met people so much worse. And now I realize like he's just a guy who really bought in. He's really not that bad. I'm so, sorry. That's really tough, man. Like, I mean, it was not fun to be the only person in the room wearing high heels and then have a whole sermon preached about me. But that's like, I feel like every fundie has had that experience. Like every former fundie has had a sermon preached only about them where it was obvious that it was about them. Like that kind of public shaming experience. We've all been there. It sucks. That is definitely an aspect of cult control. IFB isn't yeah. a cult people. Yeah. I mean, it, it. I'm not trying to downplay how much that sucked, especially as like a 15, 16 year old person with typical insecurities of somebody that age, but it's, it's not unusual. And I think a lot of us have kind of had that experience, dealt with it, you know, gone with life. Do you ever have the experience? I guess you didn't have real school. So, no. Um, but like when you'd be in class and you'd be like working on an assignment, and then uh, the teacher would like just like be going around the class looking at like seeing what people are doing. The teacher looks at something that you're doing and then they go up to the front of the class and say, Hey class, make sure that you don't do this thing. And it's the thing that you're doing. And I'm like, Oh God. So fortunately, (laughs) I don't think anybody really ever measured my shoes. It was difficult though, because heels were highly encouraged, but there were all these rules. So what you end up with is not a comfortable, well-made high heel. And I love heels and I really just don't wear them because I did all of those years and I don't think it was good for my knees, hips, and ankles. I think it's really problematic to have people whose bones are still growing walking around in heels six days a week. And they weren't ever required for me either in high school or at Hiles Anderson, but they were so highly encouraged. And it was kind of like, you're the pastor's daughter. You have to be a good example for everybody else that at Hiles Anderson, for example, you just, you couldn't be one of the end girls if you didn't wear heels every day. You couldn't, 
you weren't the girl who was desirable to date if you didn't wear heels at least like five days a week. It just, it was just the done thing. And I don't think that's good for people. No. And I mean, it's not like you can, because like if you have an uncomfortable pair of shoes, you can, you know, maybe get like some insoles or something and it'll make them maybe a bit more comfortable, maybe get a bit more support. You can't really do that with heels very well. Yeah. Because like with sneakers or with, you know, with, with men's dress shoes, you can do that no problem. So another foot-related rule is the entire IFB's collective hosiery fetish. Mm. I am pretty convinced that the IFB is the only reason that there is still a market for hosiery at all in the United States. <laughs> I had to wear them to school every single day, starting in seventh grade, all the way up until I went to sort of homeschooling, sort of one-room one schoolhouse type thing my senior year. I had to wear them to church every Sunday and every Wednesday and on Saturday for soul winning too all the way through high school. And then I went to Hiles Anderson where you just had to wear hose unless you, if you were out of your dorm at all, unless you were going directly from your dorm to the gym or unless you worked a manual labor job and your boss said you didn't have to wear them for work. Imagine working a manual labor job and your boss is like, actually, no, you do need to be wearing hose. Buddy, I don't have to imagine. <laughs> like, what? I have... Yeah, I have painted in hose. I have done heavy duty industrial cleaning in hose. I have done industrial cooking in hose many times. I, Ugh. I mean, I have. <laughs> I'm just imagining the supreme discomfort. It's it awful, and and like I don't want to gross people out, but this can lead to health problems as well. Uh, ooh, oh, no, thank you. Yeah, it's kind of an epidemic, and it's bad. So at Hiles Anderson, you would also get a dress code violation if there were any runs or tears or holes in your hose. So we all had to learn you don't sit too close to the heater on the church bus because those heaters will melt the hose right onto your skin. And then you have like a burn and also a dress code violation. What is so what's the justification for this requirement? Just do I even need to like ask if there is one? It's there's nothing in scripture. It's basically, well, we don't want to look like the world. We want to look different and look professional and look dressed up all the time. They would say, like, this is what professional women in the office do. Do you really want to give God less effort than some sinful woman puts in to go into the office? I mean, this is what professional women in the office did like 50 years ago. I'll tell you, dude, it was a wild experience to wear, have to wear hosiery every single day to college. It was weird. Honestly, I can't think of a reason why somebody would need to wear them. This is... Ugh. I think some people kind of use them as like compression socks and it help, can help with pain, I guess. Um, and I guess if somebody wants to, that's fine. I cannot think of a reason to force thousands of people to do it. You would go in the dorm bathroom at night and it's just row after row of people washing their hose in the sink and hanging them up so they will dry overnight. It, th these are, they're expensive and Hiles Anderson students are broke. So it's another mental load thing that is put on young women at Hiles Anderson because you constantly have to have it running in the back of your head. Like how many good pairs do I have? You have to take really good care of them. You have to be careful all the time. You have to make sure they're washed and dried and hung up every night unless you're my really gross roommate from freshman year. It's just it's just constant mental load, constant mental work to make sure that 
the hose are going to work out for you every single day. Because yeah. I'm, I'm thinking that, so you started at Hiles Anderson. We're the same age. So we both started college in 2011. Yes. 2011 was around the time when people were like when like yoga pants, leggings as pants really started to like be generally accepted as a thing that people would wear. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking about like how people are like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll wear the, I'll, I'll wear, you know, leggings out in public. That's fine. It's, it's comfortable. It's like the compression thing, whatever. And you're like out here. I mean, and it's, they're not even like the kind of thing you can repair. It's an extra, it's like a very synthetic manufactured clothing item. Yeah, you can't sew it to fix it. The life hack is, so if your hose tear up above the knee where people are not going to see it, you can put some clear nail polish on the rip and it will temporarily stop it. I will truly never forget the sensation of peeling dried nail polish off of my legs every single night. <laughs> um, if you have a tear like further down on your leg, you can still save that pair to wear with maxi skirts. So I guess that's good. For the sake of clarity, black tights were also allowed as a substitute for hosiery. Colored tights were allowed, but very looked down on and also incredibly difficult to style with a long skirt and not look like a clown. Like literally not even Zoe Deschanel can pull that off. I like apologies to her. She is kind of cute, but even even her with like colored tights and trying to make that an outfit usually does not work. And that was the era when that would have like if there was an era when that would have been like ooh that that's like a fit. It yeah. was like early 2010s. Cuz you can pull off colored tights with like a mini skirt, like a like a little circle skirt that falls like I don't know 4 inches above your knee and the tights coordinate and then you've got some like little ankle boots or knee boots. That can work, but it does not work with a knee-length skirt or longer, ever. <laughs> uh, I knew one person who refused to wear a hose at all and just wore black tights every single day, even in the summer. And she turned out to be one of my lifelong friends from Hiles Anderson. And she is still just as independent and marches to the beat of her own drum, just like she did back then. Honestly, I respect it. Oh, I do. I, so I much. mean, I wouldn't want to f*** with it either. That's... So I think the hose rules maybe come from two places. Like I think somebody just had a very literal nylon fetish, probably Jack Hiles. Jack Scobb also would dictate the rules of how women could dress based on his own personal preferences and like the style in which his mm -hmm. wife looked good. Yeah. So I, I think a hundred percent there was just somebody who liked the look and ran with that and made up some reasons and then it eventually became a whole rule. Also, hose helped with probably the worst IFB rule of all. And this is a TW for body shaming and eating disorders and all of that coming up here. Hose prevented any kind of jiggle from happening when walking and jiggling was against the rules. Jiggling is against the rules. Jiggling is against the rules. What we were told is that any kind of motion from like fat or muscle or skin on your body was an eye trap for men. So if you are walking and your hips are swaying, or if you're walking and fat or muscle or skin on the back of your thighs is moving as you walk, 
men just can't help but look at it. That's where their eyes are drawn to. So in dress check, you might be asked to jump up and down to make sure your chest or your butt doesn't move around too much. So if you have muscle or fat or skin on your thighs or hips or butt that might move when you use your human body to walk, hose would compress that and make it make your body more palatable to the rules. For like 95% of people, there's literally no, like no way you can avoid this, no matter what you do. Yeah. I, it is, there are, it, these people believe that God created us bipedal mammals with, who like give, grow and mature and give birth in the specific way that we do and store fat on our bodies in the specific way that we do because it's definitely not evolution to help us survive winters or anything like that. And they believe all of that, but that we are supposed to compress our entire bodies because they're sinful. I just, I didn't quite understand all of this when I was a very collagen-filled 19-year-old, but I sure do know it at 30. <laughs> like, how ridiculous this is. You've also had a baby by now. And I, like, yeah. I don't know if there's like anybody with a ba- who's had a baby who could pass this rule, unless, you know... And I there's don't probably to- not anybody in the world. And like most people who... Even most young people have some kind of cellulite or like fat or and and you know 99.999% of people have skin on their body that moves when they move because that is ha- kind of how skin is supposed to work and even very young people very thin people people who have never had children have cellulite it's it's a thing that most people have so how like the enforcement work how how are they enforcing these rules on you i would separate this into formal and informal enforcement So at school or at Hiles Anderson or at your church, if you were going to be up on the platform to sing a song, someone would be in charge of a formal dress check. So in school, it might be your teacher, your principal's wife at Hiles Anderson. It would be the dean of women or anybody who worked in the dean of women's office Um, at a church. It would usually be the music director or the music director's wife um, if the music director was a man. This person would often carry a ruler to measure things. They will have you kneel on the floor to check your skirt length. So if your skirt is supposed to be to the bottom of your knee, then that means if you kneel on the floor, the skirt will at least touch the floor. Or if the skirt is supposed to be two inches below your knee, if you kneel on the floor, the bottom two inches of your skirt will kind of puddle on the floor and they can check to make sure it's two inches. Um, They would have you do the finger measurement for your top. If there was any question, they'd have you spin around or stand up and sit down a few times to check every angle. And for formal enforcement like this, the consequences would also be more formal. At school or at Hiles Anderson, they might tell you to wear a sweater or go home and change or go back to your dorm and change. Or if you were supposed to sing in church, you might not be allowed to sing with your group unless you could fix your violations before church time. There was also a lot of informal enforcement, though. I remember getting into a huge fight with my mom. It was like maybe the only time we've ever fought. I was 15 or 16, maybe almost 16. And I wanted to wear a black top with a black skirt to church. And my top was already pushing every rule. It was an empire waist, 
which is hard to do without it being too tight. It had cap sleeves. It had a deep V-neck that I had to wear (laughs) multiple modesty panels under to make it work. And it was a mostly black outfit, which was more of a personal no-no from my parents, um, probably because they saw the baby goth tendencies and were trying to avoid that. And there was a there was a back and forth of like me trying to talk her into it and her saying no. But in the end, my mom just said, no, go change. So I just had to go change because you have to obey your parents in the IFB, even if you're like 15. There just there isn't another option. You don't know that there are other options. You've been so conditioned to compliance that it just, your brain does not think of well, what would happen if I just said no and went to church in this outfit? You don't even get to the point of considering what would happen. At church, any woman whose husband was on staff or any woman who was a Sunday school teacher or had any formal position in the church, um, or didn't sometimes, was allowed to just walk up to you and say, don't you think that top is a little tight? Or I think you've gotten too tall for that skirt. And you didn't necessarily have to go home and change right that minute. But you would feel obligated not to wear that thing again, because if you did, you'd be in rebellion against those who God has placed in authority in your life. That's really annoying. It is. And like you cannot physically force a teenager to wear something they don't want to, but you can put all of this pressure and all of this being brainwashed into compliance on them to the point that they would even enforce that on themselves. Like there were rules that I didn't agree with or rules that I didn't like. But like, for example, I remember thinking as a teenager that sleeveless tops were probably fine and that nobody was going to be that tempted by my shoulder. But I was following the rules and rarely pushing the envelope just because modesty and compliance had been so drilled into me over my entire lifetime. And If you are pushing the rules, you get threatened because people will say, well, you're just a teenage girl and you don't understand the wickedness of men's minds and the wickedness of men's hearts. You know, you're just a teenager. You don't know what kind of thoughts you are causing in the men around you. And you don't know what kind of bad things can happen to you if you tempt men. So sure, it would technically be possible for someone to get kicked out of a church if they refuse to follow modesty rules. I don't think I've ever heard of that happening. I know I've never seen it happen. What I have seen is people come in in jeans and be pulled aside by church ladies who have a closet of long skirts in some back room, and they're told to just go put on whatever is in their size. I think people, especially people who have never been in cults, (laughs) underestimate what exactly social pressure will do to people. Out in the real world, you might hear about restaurants that enforce a dress code. If a guy comes in without a jacket on, they'll have a closet full of loner jackets and they'll make him put one of those on. You might occasionally hear about some guy being drunk and making a scene about the loner jacket. And that does happen. But think about the hundreds and hundreds of restaurant patrons every year that just feel kind of bad for not checking the website, say sorry, and put on the jacket and go along with it because that's what social pressure dictates that they do. It just it, This could just be any busybody that decides they don't like you or they don't think your attitude is good or they, or they don't like something about you and they want to make your life hell too. Yeah, but you've been conditioned your entire life to accept that. Like from day one, my kid is almost three in the IFB. And you just hung out with Chuck like a couple months ago. Yeah. 
And you see, like, simultaneously how little and how big she is at the same time right now. Yeah. Like, she's so grown up. <laughs> um, today, like, I, so right before we sat down to record this, I was feeding her lunch and she asked for more cheese and I went to get her more cheese and she yells across the kitchen, hurry up, mama. Rude. I said, excuse me. <laughs> and then I, you know, explained to her, you can say fast, please, mama, or quick, please, mama, or hurry, please, mama. But you you don't want to say that without saying, please, it sounds rude. <laughs> no, like by the time I was three, I was policing my own modesty. By the time I was her age, I had been taught how to sit. I had been taught what to wear. I had been, I could quote Deuteronomy 22.5. Like Chuck is just now getting into being interested in quoting back things that you've said to her. So I've taught her to say, you wanted the best, you got the best, the hottest band in the world, Kiss. And I'm teaching her like songs that are fun. Like grown up, I, I'm right now I'm teaching her, uh, I can't help falling in love with you because I sing that to her and she loves that song. So I've been teaching her. Um, there's something else that she likes quoting that I can't remember what it is. Oh, we taught her a knock, knock joke. <laughs> Which one? Knock, knock. Who's there? Boo. Boo who? Don't cry. It's just a joke. That's a good joke. But like by the time I was that age, I was policing my own. I was sitting a certain way. I knew what I could and couldn't wear. I knew that I was not allowed to wear pants. So it's ingrained into you before your earliest memories that there's a certain way you're supposed to dress and that you're supposed to accept it if somebody corrects you or tells you to wear something different. It is kind of key to the whole IFB experience, the way that they start kids so young, because then when you are a teenager, sure, you can kick back against it a little bit or the rules might make you mad, but you're ultimately going to comply because as far as you know, that's the only option. I want to talk about what it was like trying to actually dress yourself. Like once you got to teenage or young adulthood and you needed to actually find, buy, and wear your own clothes. And the way I think that is best to explain it is that it takes up a lot of mental space. Like it takes up a lot of RAM. So you, you're you getting dressed for the day. Everything that you've bought already fits the rules or it's something that can be easily altered to fit the rules. But let's say in this hypothetical, your skirt needs a slip and your top needs either an extra t-shirt under it or a modesty panel. So now you're already hunting down two extra pieces of clothing in order to get dressed in the morning. And it's not just finding those two pieces of clothing in your dresser drawer. You also have to ensure that they're clean. You also have to buy them from the store in the first place. All of that extra mental effort just to get dressed. You had to remember to wash your hose last night. You're keeping mental track of three or four pairs at any given time because one of the pairs has a rip that you've patched with nail polish. So you can't wear that for certain activities where they're likely to rip more. You have to be able to find your safety pens for the modesty panel. So you're not even like fully dressed for the day yet. And there's already three or four extra tasks that just don't need to be there. And you're weighing all of this against the day's activities. So if you're going to be outside and it's hot, you might not be willing to wear a top that needs an additional full shirt under it. You might only be willing to wear a top that needs a modesty panel under it. So half of your wardrobe is just not available because there are not that many cute shirts out there that don't need some kind of addition to fit the fundy rules. You have to think about, is there any reason I might need to sit on the floor today? Because if I'm going to need to sit on the floor today, I can't wear this particular skirt. And that takes out half your skirts. So then you've got 
half of your wardrobe eliminated and have to choose something and it narrows you down to very few options because there's only certain outfits that go together. Then once you're dressed, you're going about your day, you're still remembering and thinking about modesty all the time, literally every moment. It's just a background program running in your head. You know that, you know, this particular skirt, you can't sit with legs crossed because of the cut of the skirt. So you have to cross your ankles whenever you sit down. If you need to pick up something off the floor, you have to be extra careful not to flash any knee. If you need to bend over to pick up a book or a small child or whatever, you have to touch your hand to your collarbone to make sure your top doesn't gap at the neckline. All this stuff seems like the kind of thing that you would see somebody get drilled on in like a movie about Regency Britain. It very much is. It took me over five years to not reflexively just stick my hand to my collarbone anytime I bend over. It was just, it was a reflex. It took me years to break that. I posted a video on TikTok probably like two years ago now, but I can still do this trick that they taught me. If you put a quarter on the floor, I can kneel down to pick up a quarter off the floor with a book balanced on my head and not drop the book going down or coming back up. I can do just about anything with a book on my head. I can go up and down stairs. I can do it all. There were very literally charm classes for all of this for Funday Girls. This all seems so weird to me because like in Regency Britain, it was very much about money and class and hierarchy and superiority. And while fundamentalism has its ties to like prosperity gospel, the average fundamentalist who is teaching their daughters like this is not a wealthy person. You know, and they're like, we know that there's tons of fundamentalist families who are living well below the poverty line. And this is just like one of those things that the IFB, like about the IFB, that has always seemed kind of weird to me in a sort of like, I don't want to say like fake, like pretending to be wealthy, but like when, do, do, do you get what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's not like, it's not like they're pretending to be rich, but it's like they're mocking the or, or, or imitating the trappings of, yeah i think that's a racist thing really yeah my it's Mm -hmm. it's a it's kind of a half-baked theory but i think it's kind of related to not being associated with quote-unquote lower class people which would be people who are not white right and so much of fundamentalism comes from the south uh like the southern united states and they're like hey era when this was formed was like the like we talked with j frank norris like the texas in 1926 yeah yeah Yeah, like where people like some of my ancestors of the more problematic of my ancestors took on these kind of social trappings like charm school like cotillion like debutante balls which is stuff that plenty of my ancestors and even more recent relatives participated in. Like I remember my grandmother telling stories about stuff like this and all of that, like it's, it's based in post-Civil War reconstruction, the need to still present oneself as a higher class person in order to feel better than people who are not white. Interesting. And, Hmm. I think, it, and it, like I said, it's a half-baked theory and I could totally be wrong, but the, that's what I see has potentially transferred over to the fundies. Now that you say that, though, that doesn't seem... Because like the people who owned slaves, the plantation owners, they saw themselves kind of in the same... They're like, we're the American version of landed gentry in 
in in in in Britain. They're like they have their nobility. We're the nobility in America. Mm-hmm. A lot of the ideas cultural practices were modeled after that interesting yeah. huh that makes- and it is about like while it's not really about wealth and it's not apparent how it is about race although i think it partially is it, it's also about fundy hierarchy because you're being raised with this idea that you have to go to Hiles Anderson and find someone who is going to be an even bigger and more famous pastor than your dad is or than your pastor is if you're going to be a missionary, you really have to be perfectly polished and have it all together so that people in the churches that you go to on deputation will give you money. There is absolutely a fundy royalty and a fundy class system. And this is where Jill Rodriguez comes off so cringy because she thinks she is at a certain level in the fundy class system and she is really not. So you're saying that if she had like a husband who is like actually a successful preacher and she did all the that she does everyone would just be like yeah that's mm-hmm. like no one would even like turn yeah absolutely and i think a big indication of that is that she's never been invited to speak at lady spectacular at first baptist church of hammond i know people who are just about as cringy cringy as her but they have that social class that she does not either due to who their husband is or maybe who their son is and this is why jill rodriguez is continually trying to get her children married off to other fundy royalty so that she can raise her status level it is incredibly um (laughs) edwardian she's like uh she's like walder frey from game of thrones I'm sorry, I haven't seen Game of Thrones. <laughs> you should so. check it out. You'd probably like it. I think you like Daenerys. I'll make I'll make sure I do that with all my free time. So another thing that has really stuck with me when it comes to modesty is the shopping habits. Imagine walking into a store and you want to shop, but you have to fit all of these rules that I've been telling you about. Immediately when you go in, it feels like 90% of the store is off limits. So you don't shop by looking in the store to see what you like. You shop by looking in the store to see what is modest. And then from that selection, you're looking to see if there's anything that is your size and that you like. I feel like it it really threw a wrench in my sense of personal style because looking back, I was wearing things that were number one, modest, and number two, trendy in the fundy sense, like things that looked like what people around me were wearing. There was so little consideration in my mind for what I actually liked or what looked good on me or anything like that. Um, The fundies did teach a lot of color theory, like winter, spring, summer, fall color theory stuff, but they taught it really badly and nobody could figure out what colors they really were. (laughs) There's this one family Christmas card photo where I was about that same, about 15. I'm wearing a green polyester wrap style top with a white modesty panel that was incredibly obvious (laughs) and i look so terrible in this photo i look as white as a ghost and i look totally miserable and looking back that top was something i wore a ton that whole year and i felt like it was the cutest shirt that i had the most fashionable shirt that i owned but I hated that top. The color did not look good on me. It was like a like a bright like emerald or Kelly green. But like I look great in a darker emerald or forest green. I do not look good in that shade. It was really low cut, so I had to have this tall modesty panel that was 
drawing attention away from everything else, the whole outfit. I hated the print. It was like a paisley print. Paisley looks good on other people. I really hate it on myself. I do not wear paisley. And this top had sequins. And I cannot stand wearing anything with sequins because they scratch the inside of my arms when my arms touch my body and it is completely miserable. And I, but I bought this top because it fit and I could make it modest and it was fashionable. And there was no thought for like, how does this look on me? Is this comfortable for me? So I really had to work on this and I'm still working on it in a lot of ways. I had to find out what looked the way I wanted it to look on myself, which I think everybody has to do. I was just like five years behind, but I also had to totally revamp the way that I look at clothes and I still catch myself doing it. I will go into a store and look right past something on a rack because it's not modest, even though I have not followed these rules in almost 10 years. And then I will have to turn around in the store and go back and look at that thing because the the conditioning still sticks in my brain all of these years later. So at the beginning of the episode, we spoke about how women have the responsibility for the purity of a man's thoughts. We've also spoken about with like regards to when we talked about Liberty University, that if a woman were the victim of an assault, then she could be victim blamed based on her behavior prior to the assault. Was there a sense of like, I'd better follow these rules or X thing could happen to me? Yeah, there absolutely was. But X bad thing that could happen to me might not be what you're thinking it is. Obviously, being assaulted or being harassed are on that list of bad things that are supposedly more likely to happen if you're quote unquote immodest. The teaching tends to be if you happen to get assaulted and you were perfectly modest and appropriate, if you were 100% perfect, you're innocent. But if you were immodest or flirty or um, you showed a guy the inside of your wrist, you share the blame for your assault. Inside of the that wrist. Is, that is a very real thing that I got in trouble for in high school. Wrist. I was showing men the inside of my wrist too much, which is a universally uh, acknowledged sexual come on. Yeah, when in that episode of Friends where they're talking about the erogenous zones, the one of the yes, seven, seven, yes, <laughs> what the f Wait, the wrist. I'm yeah. Like, okay, so maybe you got to just start wearing bracelets more, like uh, get really no, because that draws attention to your wrists. What? So I was literally taught to stand with my wrists facing inwards towards my body. What are the because wrists I was, to do? What man is It's not your whole wrist. It's only the inside. It's just the, the inner wrist. He's like, yeah, let me look at the inside of that wrist, girly. Like, what, what are we... I don't know, but I very literally got in trouble for this in high school because I was showing off the insides of my wrists too much. What man? I've never heard that before. <laughs> that... So that one I, was not in my notes. It just came to mind. God. I could not stop it. <laughs> But getting, like, in all seriousness, getting sexually assaulted or being sexually harassed is not all that is on the list of bad things that can and will happen to you. Um, and in the Fundy mindset that you deserve if you dress immodestly or if you are flirty or forward with men. The other bad thing that could happen to you is that you could cause a man to lust. So Matthew 5.28 says, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So, you know, biblical literalism, right? The verse says committed adultery with her already in his heart. 
Now, to a normal person, you read that as the man has committed adultery in his heart, and that's bad. But the IFB believes because of that phrase, committed adultery with her, means that if you entice a man to lust by your appearance, you have also committed the sin of adultery just like he has. You are as guilty as he is for his lust. And when the Bible says adultery, it means that it is literally as bad as if he had physically committed adultery. You see the layers of biblical literalism here? This is so insane. Like, I think a lot of normal people read that verse and see that this is a metaphorical adultery and that maybe if you are going to take the Bible as the word of God and believe in that, if that's your belief, then maybe God is telling you don't lust after people, don't obsess over people who haven't consented, maybe. Um, Like, it's not (laughs) necessarily saying don't see somebody who's looking good walking down the street and think they look good it's maybe talking about some actions or mindsets that go beyond that into possessiveness over a person or obsession with a person beyond their consent but the ifb believes it says with her and it says adultery so it is literally just as bad as physically committing adultery and she is just as responsible as the man is i used the past tense when i said the ifb believed this Because I have definitely seen a slight shift away from this in recent years, but this is what was taught to me as a child and teenager. Do you think that the shift away from this is as a result of maybe some of these men getting going to jail for their crimes and them saying, maybe we got to rethink this teaching? Because these like, I mean, because I'm remembering that Jack Scop, when he went to jail, he also filed that um appeal the it's her fault letter yeah the it's her fault letter. he wrote a letter to the judge basically saying it's her fault she opened she you know was very flirty with me and she said to me that she had had sexual experience before or whatever or something like that and the judge was like this doesn't excuse it and if i could add years to your sentence for you writing this letter i would do it which sadly could not happen uh judge lozano yeah, do you th- do, uh, do you think though that Jack Scop's uh, arrest and like the cluster that surrounded that could have possibly had an effect on them moving away from this? Yeah, I think that and and the natural clap back to this incredibly bad take and other arrests, I think, could have been a factor in the shift away from this teaching. Like the consequences that you're talking about, did you? see them more as like a natural consequences type thing or did or was it more of like a god removed his hand of protection from me type thing so god removes his hand of protection something bad can happen to me because i i mean this is the thing that if you're in the ivlp yeah where they believe oh i disobeyed my father now god removes his hand of protection bad things are going to happen to me now I would say both, but more towards natural causes, because the teaching is that men are just naturally not able to resist. I I think this helps people understand a lot of things. Like this whole episode, it explains why a lot of fundy women look so similar in their dress styles. It helps people understand how micro trends circulate within fundamentalism, because there aren't a lot of options. So when somebody comes up with like, oh, let's all wear really big hair bows or when a worldly fashion trend comes out that fits the modesty rules like statement necklaces or really wide belts, everybody jumps on it because it's exciting to have something new. But I think it it also explains 
why Fundy Women take modesty so seriously. I hope it explains the mental load of modesty. And I think I hope it explains why people self-police modesty so religiously and why moving away from that and into making your clothing choices for yourself is so scary. I have, I think, one more question before I think we're going to okay. wrap up. Okay. Um, when you were out in public back when you were a fundy and you saw non-fundamentalist women, how did you perceive them? Did you think that they had no concern for their own safety? Did you think that they had some sort of like depravity that made them enjoy causing men to stumble? Or did you think that they just didn't know? I think it was they just didn't. It, it's both. They, some worldly women know what they do to men and enjoy it because they're wicked and others just don't know what they're doing. Like you would hear that in a lot of people who join the IFB as an adult, they would give a testimony about, I got really convicted about wearing pants. I just had no idea what I was doing for to the men around me. So I, you know, repented and I burned all of my pants and God has blessed me ever since. Hmm. It's like, I just, that's kind of how it's framed as some people are wicked, but a lot of people just don't know. And that's another reason why IFB women are supposed to dress so modestly because you are showing all the worldly women out in the world that there's a better way. And by doing so, like the more people you can convert to dressing this way, you're buying insurance against your husband going off and cheating on you. Because the fewer worldly and modest women he sees, the more likely he is to be able to overcome his instincts. It Women hmm. are expected to think, it's not just thinking about your clothing and your body, but everybody else's clothing and everybody else's body nearly 24-7, all to spare one random man, a random lustful thought. It gets veiled in this very bad, like, pseudo-feminism meets chivalry thing about how women deserve respect. Dress this way so that men will respect you. Men naturally respect a modest woman. And if you want to be treated nicely by men, you dress this way and you'll get nicer treatment. Men will open doors for you and they won't curse in front of you and they will be polite and they will treat you the way that all women want to be treated with chivalry. It's classic IFB. Make up a problem that doesn't exist and offer the solution, which is to do it our way. In this case, the problem being women want to be treated like it's the 1950s and the solution is cover your whole body because that might help men to act like normal human beings and pretend to care about you. Yikes. And we wonder why uh, the IFB turns into a feminism factory for those who get out. Once that train starts, there's no stopping it. Um, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I think that's about it for uh, today's episode. Uh, next week, we have an interview with Eric Skwarzynski from Preacher Boys Podcast. Also, one of the guys who's been really instrumental in making the Let Us Pray documentary series, I guess a two-episode documentary that's on uh, uh, Investigation Discovery and HBO Max. Uh, we're going to have him on sometime next week. If you guys want to follow the podcast on social media, it is at Leaving Eden Podcast. On We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on threads. Join our Facebook group, uh, uh, Eden Exodus. You can join our Patreon 
for a very, 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 very extended version of today's episode where we go into a lot of detail and a lot of stories about this stuff that we just didn't have time to put in the regular streaming cut of the episode. But we think that you guys will enjoy that. And that's over on our Patreon at patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. You can follow me on social media at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. Sadie. You can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter at Hell Yes Sadie, and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You guys have a great day. Bye bye. No regrets, no confusion.